Well, good morning, Redeemer. You know, a few years ago, I had a major accident out here on Highway 21 between I-20 and Chick-fil-A. For those of you who were um, here during that time, uh, the accident could have killed me without without question. God spared my life and uh, really shook me up. But uh, this morning, I was right there at the same place and had a a man come out uh, like zero to 60 in a matter of a second and a half, and um, I was able to swerve off the side, and he missed me by inches, but right into my door uh, again this morning, and uh, it really rattled me. Um, but I will tell you, um, we have to be ready at all times to um, meet our Lord, because you just never know when that's going to happen. Um, I thank him for sparing my life again this morning. Um, I'll ask you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Thank you for your mission-minded and mission-centered uh, prayer, Tyler. And I, I just say amen and amen to every one of those requests that you made before our, our great God and King. The God whom we worship is a sending God. He sent Moses to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery and out of um, capture into a place of freedom and liberty. He sent Joshua after that to lead those same people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. He sent David to the battlefield, to fight for His glory when nobody else would. He sent Nathan to David to rebuke and to restore him after the debacle with Bathsheba and Uriah. He sent Nehemiah to rebuild and restore Jerusalem and its walls for worship and adoration and praise. He sent Isaiah to preach righteousness and judgment and salvation and repentance to the people of God. He sent Jonah to preach judgment and repentance and salvation to Nineveh. And this is not to mention his sending of Joseph and Elijah and Elisha and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and a host of others who were to represent God on a sending mission to speak for Him and to declare the way of salvation. Our God is a sending God. And the, the pinnacle of His sending was the incarnational ministry of Jesus Christ. God the Father sent God the Son. And in sending him, he is born of a virgin. And when he is born in that barn on that evening, all of those folks who came, those specific shepherds and, and those folks who came to celebrate him, that they were saying things like, he has come to seek and to save the lost. And this baby grows up to live a righteous life, a life that we couldn't live. But when he begins to, to embark on his ministry, God the Father sends the Holy Spirit to indwell and to guide and to empower the, the Son of God 
on this sent ministry so that he can have strength and power and love and guidance and knowledge and wisdom to carry out this mission that he has been sent to go on. And then he preaches this saving message. And in the Gospel of John, we have seen that he preaches this message to Pharisees and religious leaders like Nicodemus, who who he looks at him and says, listen, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it, and, and he says, look, just as you can't see the wind, you can't see the Spirit, but you must be born again of the Spirit. And then right after that, he gives this saving message to the woman at the well, and he says, I want to give you living water so that you will never thirst again. And she's confused by that, but then he preaches the truth to her, and then her eyes can then see his glory, and she becomes saved. He's on this saving mission and has this saving message. And, and in doing so, he, 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 he experiences this sacrificial death, the death that we saw a couple of weeks ago. And then after dying sacrificially and church substitutionarily for us in our place, he is buried. And on the third day, he rise, rises from the dead triumphantly. And this is all part of the mission that he was sent on. And so this is the question, how does God's attribute of being a sender impact us in our lives where we live? How does God's attribute, his character, his his nature of being a sender impact us? And the text before us this morning answers that question. Look at John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, It is withheld. I want to walk through this text that is obviously simple and fairly brief relative to the passages of Scripture that we have been studying each Sunday in our study of the Gospel of John. And I want us to see six aspects of this scene that that we need to understand about our Savior and then ultimately about ourselves. And so if you'll look down, I want you first to see the hiding. The hiding. On the, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Here they are hiding. Doors locked. In those days you had big bolts that covered over doors and, and that's exactly what happened. The doors are bolted in this place where the ten disciples are. 
We don't know exactly where they are, but it's possibly the upper room. It's possibly uh, their home away from home whenever they visit Jerusalem. We don't know, but this is what we do know. We know that outside the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is still happening. We know that people are still partying. People are still enjoying fellowship with one another as they've come from all over the Roman Empire. But here these ten are hiding, scared. And I think it makes us, at least for a moment, want to look back at the last 72 hours. Think about the last 72 hours in the disciples' life. Thursday night was just a surreal moment. It was surreal because Jesus teaches them much truth about what is about to happen and why it's about to happen and what he's going to accomplish. It's surreal because one of, one of their very own, Judas, has walked out of there and has betrayed Jesus. It is surreal because Peter makes this grandiose statement that, that I will never deny you. And then no less than three or four hours later, he denies him three times. It is surreal because Jesus has gotten down on his hands and knees and he has gone by disciple by disciple and foot by foot, washing their dirty feet. And this is a moment that they just cannot conceive of. And then it is surreal because he establishes with them the Last Supper, the, the communion celebration. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood that is spilled out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood and drink it as often as you will in remembrance of me. It has been surreal because Peter has cut off a guy's ear and Jesus has restored his surreal because Jesus utters one word and all of that mob that came after him falls back on their backs and their, their heads and then ultimately they stand up and they still arrest Jesus. It has been surreal in this, this evening 72 hours ago and all of that led into all of this other stuff that happened. They they flee, they run because they're scared of the same thing happening to them that happened to Jesus. And so even though they pledged their allegiance, they actually had disloyalty. And so Friday morning comes and it is nerve wracking. They don't know what's going on. They're hearing reports. They're trying to hang around to see what's going to happen, but they don't want to risk danger for themselves. So they're listening to what, and they're hearing that Jesus has, has been um, unduly uh, judged and and unduly brought over to the Romans. They're hearing it's possible that he is going to be scourged. And sure enough, um, they possibly even hear the cries of Jesus as he's being scourged. And, and then ultimately Friday afternoon comes and they go up to Golgotha, some of them very close, others of them surely a distance away, and they watch their Savior murdered on the cross. And all of their dreams and hopes and desires, and passions, and vision for what their life was about to become go away as they feel like this is utter defeat. And who knows how many of them saw the burial, but when, when Jesus is taken off of the cross and, and then taken to the tomb that is not too far away, they feel a sense of finality. And church, surely on Saturday morning, there is hopelessness and emptiness and hollowness, and numbness, and way, wayward thinking like, what do we do now? And Saturday night comes, and they try to go to bed, and Sunday morning early, and then that's what we saw last week. John and Peter and Mary Magdalene go to the tomb, they see that it's empty, so the two men go back to the place where they're staying. Mary actually interacts with Jesus, and she is charged up. She's fired up. My Lord! My Lord! And, and, and it's just an, and it's an amazing interaction that happens. And so Sunday, 
Surely they have gotten the report now from Mary. I've seen him. I've touched him. He's risen from the dead. But here they are, church. Here they are still, holed up in this room, in this house. Doors locked, scared. And this is what we need to realize, and we need to know it not only about the disciples, but about our own selves. But the fear of man is a controlling thing. It is powerful beyond our understanding. And even though we have a report that our Savior and our Messiah and our Lord is risen from the dead, we are still scared to death of what people might do to us or say about us or or, um, group us into something. Let us not gloss over the powerful force of the fear of man because that is exactly what they have as they are hiding among themselves away from all of the Jews that they think are going to take them to the same peril as their Lord. We go from the hiding to the appearing. The appearing. Jesus came and stood among them, and then he says to them, and we're just going to call it the appearing and just meditate for, for probably less than one minute, but look, Jesus comes and Jesus stands. Notice that, notice that John doesn't say simply that Jesus came and said to them, but he says he came and stood among them. I think that he's just making the point that Jesus is not hindered. He's not paralyzed. Jesus is not um, like um, being carted in as if he doesn't have some resurrection body. No, here he is standing firm and tall in their midst as if to say, I'm here. So here he is, he appears to them. Who knows what they're thinking at this moment? But let's go from the appearing to the greeting. The greeting. Peace be with you. Now, let's just stop for a moment and ask the question, what would we expect the first words that Jesus may utter to the disciples who have all forsaken him less than two and a half days prior to this. To say it in contemporary language, I would almost expect Jesus to say, hey, fellas, you know, maybe like, Front runners, bandwagon followers, you know. Um, so how's it going? You know, just just some type of sarcastic remark to say, you know, told you. Um, but that's not what he says. Instead of rebuke, instead of sarcasm, instead of correction, instead of some statement that is going to bring this uh, significant amount of guilt that they're already owning upon themselves, the Savior actually comes with the most gracious, compassionate, loving, soothing, comforting greeting He could possibly give. Shalom. Shalom. Peace. And this is not just a... Yes, peace was an ordinary greeting, but in this sense, this is a grandiose, theological, personal, corporate, magnificent greeting that Jesus gives. And we know it because he repeats it here in just a moment. He says it twice. Peace be to you. Peace be with you. And so we need to ask the question, what what is this peace? Listen, peace on a personal level is, is a 
is this inner tranquility, this inner harmony that arises from knowing that you have a reconciled relationship with God. That's what peace is on a personal level. It it is, by some definitions, it it, it is the the, uh, heart's calm after Calvary's storm. It is a sense of favor, the favor of God resting on your heart and on your soul. That's what peace is on a personal level. But on a corporate level, which is really the way Jesus is describing this here, or or wishing it for them, it is a total well-being, a prosperity, a security that's rooted in God's presence among His people. You cannot have shalom, you cannot have peace unless God's presence is with you and His favor is on you and His power is in you. And Jesus comes and He's saying exactly that. Here I am, the Son of God, God the Son, who has accomplished everything that is necessary for you to have peace with God and reconciliation. So my presence is on you, my presence is in you, my my provision is on you. You can now have peace, shalom, Wholeness, tranquility, harmony, not only with your God, but with each other. Peace to you, he says. That's the greeting. And there is no peace apart from Christ. But with peace, there, I mean, with Christ, there is total and abiding, consistent peace in your heart, in your soul, and in your mind. That moves us from the greeting to the revealing. It says, when he, when, when he said this, He showed them his hands and his side. There was something different about the body of Jesus after his resurrection than it was before his crucifixion. John doesn't make a big deal about it right here He really understates it. But the doors are locked, they're bolted, and Jesus walks right on in. And there's something about his his nature at this point where he's just walking through doors. We'll see it again later in this series. But there's also something different about his appearance because Mary doesn't recognize him and thinks he's the gardener. Two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walks with them for a long time and explains to them the scriptures from Genesis through Malachi. And that entire time, they have no idea that it's Jesus of Nazareth that is walking beside them. People don't, don't recognize his, his appearance. Oh, not only that, he also walks through doors and has different, different kinds of, of, of abilities, I guess you could say, or, or, uh, or I guess you could call it his transcendent, his transcendent appearance or his glorified appearance, his resurrected appearance. And so he has to show them who he is by showing them his pierced hands and his pierced side. Yeah, it's Jesus, all right. It's, it's him. It's, it, it sounds like him because we know his voice. It, it looks like him because he was just crucified. Jesus reveals himself to them. And so that takes us from the revealing to the rejoicing. Now, John, John greatly understates this. He says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We don't know what else they did. We don't know what all they said. But when our translation says the disciples were glad, it's karao. They rejoiced. They got excited. They celebrated. This, in fact, is Jesus. We were 
We were hollowed. We were numb. We were downcast. We were depressed. We were struggling. We were visionless. We were hopeless. We didn't know what to do. But in fact, this is our Savior. Come back from the dead. Risen. He's defeated death. He's defeated darkness. He's defeated hell. He's defeating sin. He, he has come to us. We see Him. We touch Him. He's amazing. Our life has changed now. This changes everything for us. And so they celebrate from within their hearts and then certainly they get really excited together as a, as a group of disciples. They rejoice at the resurrection of their Lord. But we don't get the details of it. That's not what John is concerned with expressing to us, church. What John is concerned to expressing about expressing to us is the, the reason why Jesus has appeared to them. Is it to give them peace? Absolutely. And that peace that they are to possess, that inner tranquility of their heart and soul, that their Savior is risen from the dead, that, that, that understanding and, and embracing of the fact that I have a Savior who has conquered every single obstacle that I needed to have reconciliation with God and peace in my own heart for all eternity, all that's for a reason. And John gets to that reason. This is John's version of the Great Commission. So we have the sending. And this is the last portion of the text. We've had the hiding, the appearing, the greeting, the revealing, and the rejoicing. And now we've got the sending. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. This is this is the mission. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. I'm a sent one. I have lived my life, and I have preached my message, and I have accomplished my work. And now I'm about to ascend back to the Father's presence. But just as my Father sent me, I am sending you. In other words... Your life and your mission is to be an extension of my life and my mission. I think as we think as we consider the implications of this some of us who may be inclined to want to back away from being a sent one, an apostle, uh, an ap- apostello, one who has been sent. We, we may, we may say, well, that's, that's just for the disciples. But you know, in Matthew's version of the Great Commission, that happens a little later than this right here, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe 
all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Part of the commands of Jesus to the disciples were to go and make more disciples. If you want to follow the very commands of Jesus, you must have to understand yourself as one who is sent into the world to preach the same message that he preached, to live the same kind of life that he lived, and to call people to salvation, seeking them and offering them forgiveness of sins. There is the commission that he gives. Just as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Verse 22, we see not only, the, not only really the commissioning, but now we see the power. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Admittedly, this is not the easiest verse and therefore experience to interpret definitively. I admit that. But let's understand to the degree that we can understand clearly what Jesus is saying here or what Jesus is doing here. First of all, as we've been reading through the Gospel of John, this is a unique thing that Jesus does, is that when He said this, He breathed on them. The only really other way that you could translate that verb right there is to say, He blew on them. <sighs> Look it up in the lexicon, it means to breathe or to blow. I find that a little bit unique, a little bit odd even, that that's what Jesus did, that He breathed on them or He blew on them. But I do know this, is that whenever this kind of language is used in Scripture, especially of God, it, it is indicative of creative power. It's indicative of what a sovereign does in order to create and to start and to initiate. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God breathed into that man the very life of that man. Isaiah, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 18. The, the breath of God is to go forth into the drought, into the valley of dry bones, and those dry bones will live. And here, Jesus, the very Son of God, breathes on them the creative power that is going to initiate and cause them to go out with strength and courage and boldness and fearlessness to do exactly what he has done in the entirety of his life, which was to seek and save the lost. So he breathed on them and then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Take in the Holy Spirit. Absorb the Holy Spirit. Now this is where it gets a little bit um, kind of tricky or hard to understand exactly what happened at that point. 
Because when we put our good Bible study glasses on, do we see that John says they actually received the Holy Spirit? It doesn't say they, oh, they received the Holy Spirit at that point and they became bold and courageous and and fearless. Actually, if you keep reading in the Gospel of John, they still have fear. They're still locking themselves up. They're still struggling. And even in John chapter 21, they're, they're, they're still kind of struggling. And Peter has to be restored by Jesus along the way. Like, where's the boldness and fearlessness and passion and love and celebration if they have this power already? That's just the stuff that I'm asking this week when I'm studying this passage. There are some who say, well, this was like an initial installment of the Holy Spirit, or this is a foretaste of the Holy Spirit, or, 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 or whatever. This is what I will tell you, church, after studying this week, I believe that this is a symbolic gesture of the Lord when He says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm going to ascend, and then I'm going to send my Spirit, and we read about it in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, I'm going to send my Spirit, and when the Spirit actually comes, what happens? Boldness, fearlessness, excitement, zeal, passion, giftedness that causes a stir among the city of Jerusalem, and immediately 3,000 people are saved. So, I believe that this is a symbolic statement of the Lord Jesus that says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you receive Him, and you go out as a sent one, just as I was a sent one, and you have the power that I have, and you have the message that I have, and you have the boldness that I have, because you have the same Spirit that I have. So, you've got the commissioning, and then you've got the power, and then finally, you've got the message. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And people have been stumped by this statement of Jesus for so many centuries. And entire religious organizations have led millions of people to error because of statements like this. They they use it and manipulate it to, to say things like, they alone have power to forgive sins. Listen, this, this passage is not complicated. This, this passage is, is not even remotely complex. Jesus is saying simply this. You have the ability to offer people forgiveness if they trust in me, that I lived the life they couldn't live, that I I died the death that they deserve, that I rose from the dead and defeated death and, and hell and Satan and sin and darkness. And if you trust in Jesus, you can have the forgiveness of your sins. Listen, the greatest need that everybody has on this planet is forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is simply authorizing these sent ones to declare that you can be forgiven of your sins if you trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But if you don't, if you don't trust in Jesus, you want to trust in yourself, trust in another religion, trust in other hopes and dreams that you're having to fulfill in this life alone, then listen, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, not my own authority, but the authority of the Word of God and the commissioning of Jesus Your sins are retained and you will bear them not only now but in all eternity because you are rejecting the offer of forgiveness and peace and meaning in your life. And this is the deal. This is our message. Church, if somebody asked me, so what do you do? 
I say, well, on the authority of the Word of God, I offer to people the forgiveness of sins and peace with God, reconciliation with their Maker, that they can know joy now and glory forever. That's what I do. Would you like to know that peace and that joy and that forgiveness? And if we don't think in those terms today, Today, we need to ask God to help us start thinking in those terms. Because just as they were sent ones, we are sent ones. Church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes your identity. You go from an enemy of God to a child of God. You go from a hater of God to a lover of God. It changes your character. You you are totally depraved and can't do anything but sin, but now you're totally in the family of God. You belong to Him with a new heart, and now you can live for His glory and praise, and you can enjoy Him and worship Him now and forevermore. It changes your family. You go from being uh, in a group of people who are all destined to God's wrath now to a group of people who are experiencing the love of God and will one day experience eternal glory with God. It changes your future. It changes your calling. It changes your life mission. Listen, Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. And that is your mission. Your life and your mission is to be an extension of Jesus' life and His mission. And so this is what I want to ask you right now. Where are you going with your commission? Where are you going? Where is God sending you? There is an answer to that question. If you don't know it, your mission this week is to pray and to ask God where your mission is so that you can fulfill God's calling on your life, which is to be a sent one. Don't neglect your primary calling. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to see the Great Commission in the Gospel of John. And we pray that you would send each one of us to the people that need Jesus and that we will proclaim to them that there is life and celebration and joy in the Savior and His work on our behalf. Help us to be bold, courageous, and fearless. We pray it in the risen Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.